Well, hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network studios here on Detroit's Lower East Side, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform for authentic voices or for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new EP every week and we have two very special guests in the building with us today. We are happy to welcome Meredith Freeman from the Fisher Foundation and Kevin Bryan from the Ford Foundation. Thanks to them both for joining us. We're going to talk to them a little later on about how philanthropy shows up in black cities. It's going to be a great show. Welcome, everybody. How y'all doing today? Thank you for the invitation. Great. Yeah. Glad to be here. Very happy behind this mask. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome back, Donna. We missed you, Donna. I went away, got sick. Now I'm wearing a mask. I never thought I'd do this. (laughs) But it's like, you know, how do I carry out my work? Responsibilities and not make everybody sick in the process. Because uh, I showed told her to yeah, stay home. Not to show up. We appreciate I showed so told her not said, to come you know in. What? The new me is not going to allow myself to be, you know, a problem for other people wearing masks. <laughs> so I guess we don't have to ask you how your weekend was, right? Well, my weekend, you know what? Um, I was sick most of the weekend, but I did have my book club yesterday, and yeah. I love my book club. So, um, you know, I'll be. What happy. are y'all reading now? We read a book called A Piece of Cake about a woman named Cupcake Brown mm. who um, was had a tragic childhood, ended up, you know, um, prostituting herself at 11. She joined the Crips. She lived on the streets. And she ended up, you know, being a heavy crack addict and then working for a law firm. And at some point she hit rock bottom and um, went and confessed that she was an addict to her boss. And he got her into treatment. And she got clean, and then she got her GED, and then she got her um, bachelor's degree, and then she went to law school, and she became a lawyer. Wow. Go ahead, Cupcake. It is the biggest come up I've ever heard of for a woman. It's a a novel? No, it's an actual true story about a woman in um, Mm. California whose name is Cupcake. And her mother named her Cupcake because she asked for (laughs) cupcakes when she was pregnant. (laughs) But it's a great story if you really want to just admire the human spirit and the humanity and the brilliance of rest within all people. Here is this woman who was, you know, just clearly the dregs of society, who graduated at the top of her law school class. Wow. Who graduated wow. magna cum laude from the um, University of San Francisco. Um, so it was great. <laughs> I graduated. Thank you, Lottie. <laughs> We're out of here. How, Kevin and Meredith, how was y'all weekends? Y'all do anything fun? Well, I have two kids, 12 and 16, and they were gone for the weekend. Oh, My look at you. Went to the NBA All-Star Weekend. He was Ooh, sending me wow. pictures. I was like, how can I meet At 16? <laughs> at 12. At 12? Wow. wow. My 16-year-old was running at the University of Kentucky High School Invitational Track Meet. doing her What event? Wow. So she's a sprinter. She ran hurdles this weekend. Oh, so. wow. So I just uh, stayed home and watched all the pictures and the videos. Oh. So, yeah. yeah. Kevin, you do anything fun? Well, I, like I, I was sick last week, so I was actually at home for most of the week, and I finally started feeling better. And most of the weekends, I actually spend in my parents' house because my, my my parents have, have gone through illnesses, and I just go over there to take care of things. So you know, I actually took the Christmas lights down. Fine. <laughs> can fine. you come to my yeah, house? Too? Yeah, we. I can help you out. With that. I can help you out. With that. And we had friends over last night, so it was a kind of quiet weekend. <laughs> my tree is still. Alive. <laughs> 
you know, one time my tree was up until the 4th of July. And it was, oh, no, that's yeah, so really bad. <laughs> yes, my kids you were weird. like, you know what, you might as well just leave it up right. until Christmas. I just point. haven't. I can help people with that, though. Seriously. I'm not. I do, I I'm telling you, you can come for real. I've, I haven't been at home for more than two hours other than to, like, sleep. I need mm. my schedule is just. So you must have had a great weekend. I had a fantastic weekend. I went to uh, a baby shower. Some friends, some friends of mine are pregnant uh, with their first girl, first baby girl, and had a baby shower brunch. Nice. Y'all, the culture of baby showers is just changing. First of all, I have never really. I think I've only been to one baby shower in my life. This was the second, and they're like, "You want to make uh, bows?" And I'm like, "So we." We have co-ed baby showers now. It was just something for me to kind of like wrap my head around. It's like, oh, okay. Well, you just said your friends were pregnant, and yeah. I was just trying to understand right. how that worked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I, I have three. A husband and a wife. I, was, I have three, and I was only me. Let me rephrase that. My friend Alexis is pregnant. Okay. Yeah. And after that, I had, man, I had the esteemed honor and opportunity to moderate a panel at the Detroit Historic. Uh, museum. Oh, yeah. uh, we had a screening of One Sweet Night, a film by Andrew Cologne, uh, who came to the city uh, to work with Century Partners and do real estate development, but is, all, but is also um, a filmmaker. And he made a 20 minute short on uh, the night of the Ossian Suite. Ossian Suite's home was mobbed mm -hmm. here on the city's east side and moderated a panel that was, who was on that panel? Candace Fortman from Outlier Media, Sarita uh, Scott from the Kellogg Foundation. Hey, new job. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jamon Jordan and Daniel Baxter. Oh, wow. Along with Andrew. And let me tell y'all, these are all powerhouses in their own way. Oh, absolutely. And it was just an amazing, uh, just an amazing vibe, amazing storytelling. Um, I just, I have to publicly say again to Daniel Baxter to thank him. Thank him for stewarding um, that history, both the physical structure and carrying that story with him. Um, and Jamon, Candace, Rita, uh, Andrew, Kalisha Davis at Detroit Historical Society. You all did an amazing job. Yeah. It was packed out. I saw, yeah. um, and that's one of the things I wanted to attend <laughs> because, you know, I'm so into that story. Yeah. And Daniel, nobody tells that story better than Daniel nobody. Baxter. Mm. He brings it to life. I don't know if you all know, but um, just for the people who are in our listening audience, Daniel grew up in Dr. Sweet's house. Yeah. Oh. And um, he lived, he's with, that lived with that And his mother and sister lived in that house until they passed away. Um, I think it was last year after the mayor designated, after the city designated, this was going to be a national historic yeah. space. And they won a $500,000 award to turn it From into the a center. Park Service. So we all had this big thing in front of his house. The city invited everybody out. And months later, first his mother, then his sister passed away. Yeah. Mm. And wow. so they now have the Dr. Ossian Sweet Foundation. Yeah. And they are um, raising money to invest in young people and in keeping that history alive. And so Daniel was the um, deputy director for or director of elections for the city of Detroit. Now he's, he's at the county, at, at the county Wayne mm -hmm. County. But um, in his free time, he does he runs this. The foundation. Now, the other thing about <laughs> Daniel, you'll find this interesting, Meredith, is he's a track dad. Oh, OK. And since yeah. I was a track mom, oh, okay. we see each other at track meets all of the time. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. um, you know, we became friends through track. And I used to work run um, Vanguard. And he's a member of Second Ebenezer Church. So I've oh. known him for so long. Mm -hmm. 
And he's brought that story to so many audiences, um, youth audiences that we've worked with, including at ECN. Yeah, so uh, look for it. Uh, actually, uh, Detroit Public Television was there filming uh, that discussion. So look for it on uh, Channel 56. How can we see the film, yeah, though? Is Andrew showing the film? So the places? Historical Society will be showing the film uh, all month long okay. at different times in honor of Black History Month. So okay. Kalisha Davis, who does a wonderful job over at the Society, has decided that this is the year where we blast Dr. Sweet's story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely going to get over here and see that. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. me too. She, it was amazing. So thank y'all. Thank y'all. That was fun. Thank you. Have, hope we can do it again next year, next and, time. And, and everybody should read the book, Arc of Justice. Yeah, Arc of Justice, yeah. I don't, If you haven't yep. read it, yep. read totally it. Agree. Everybody in the listening audience, it was one of the best books I've ever read. And yeah. it really goes through Dr. Sweet's story. Well, Andrew says that Arc of Justice was the impetus for him wanting to make the film, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Because it offered a narrative about Detroit and about a piece of Detroit history that he had not heard, right. not being a native. He was uh, from Mississippi. So mm -hmm. um, it's a great book, guys. Check it out. Mm -hmm. It's time for Fresh Off the Press news that we are thinking about. This is our commentary on news items relevant to the city of Detroit. If you have news items that you want us to cover, you can send them to authenticallydetroit at gmail.com or hit us up on our socials at authenticallydetroit. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Um, I think we're going to play a video. All right. Take a From listen. WDIV, take a listen to this story about a mural um, that is being um, commissioned by the city of Detroit. Um, Detroit is searching for artists to work on a mural that would be the largest in the city's history. So take a listen. And this is from CA and the city of Detroit have teamed up on an art project that would be one of the largest in the city's history. It is a massive blank canvas. And as our Everard Casme explains, they're looking for artists all over the world to get the job done. This is what 1,500 feet of wall looks like. To Rochelle Riley, the city of Detroit's newly appointed director of arts and culture, it's a blank canvas. One of the things that Detroit is known for around the world are our murals. And one of the things I'm doing is making sure I teach people the difference between murals and graffiti. This is murals. The city of Detroit and FCA, which owns the wall, is looking for artists to paint what would be one of the largest art mural installations in the city's history. A global open call for artists to beautify the area begins this Friday, Valentine's Day. Murals literally are what people in other countries celebrate, but what we have seen because there hasn't been the same type of attention as just people painting over walls or painting over bridges. No, we're going to have a huge recognition of the murals that we have in the city. You can see the wall where the mural will be painted as you drive through the neighborhood here on Beneteau. It's right behind the Jefferson Assembly Plant. Rochelle hopes that someone from Detroit will be awarded the job. I would be thrilled. As a matter of fact, I want people to know that some of our muralists are known around the world and are some of the best in the world. And for a Detroiter to be a part of the team is not only likely, but I can't imagine it not happening. Rochelle is just one of the members on the selection committee for the paid mural project. The work will be done by either artists or teams of artists, but the community's input is needed as well. They have these community visioning sessions, which have already started with people in the community and kids at the school, because this is their art. They're going to see it every day. And FCA wants them to know that this is a part of making sure there's a community connection here between the company and the community. On Detroit's east side, Everett Casimir, Local 4. All right. FCA. 
I just have so many responses to that. Well, go ahead. Um, I'm going to start with the whole concept of the difference between murals and graffiti. Um, are murals gentrified graffiti? Is a mural a mural because somebody takes around, comes around and takes street art and figures out a way to monetize that and to take it away from the culture? Um, and to do this in a neighborhood where you have a lot of young people who have functioned as artists and even as muralists, and to say, we're going to look and try to find somebody great who can do this. There's so many reactions I have to that. Um, but I, I think everybody should understand the context of the wall. The wall is not just something that came to be. The wall is an example of a corporate corporation getting all kinds of corporate welfare to go into a community, having the city give the corporation, give the corporation land and close off a street and take down a, whole a greenway, greenway a whole green and way. replace that greenway with a wall. And, you know, I can't think when people say build that wall, I, I, it's just <laughs> never a good thing to me. You know, I was just having a conversation with some people earlier today about the wall on 8 Mile, the separated, mm -hmm. um, 8 Mile, Mile in Manor in Burwood, the separated, a black neighborhood from a white neighborhood that was put up in order to address redlining concerns of people who are trying to do a development. And that wall has graffiti on it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure it would not rise to Rochelle Riley's um, standard of art, but that graffiti means something to people who put it there. Um, and then you have... Um, Tanya Stevens, who is a local activist, points, posted a picture on her Facebook page of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> you know, walls are not designed to be inclusive. The purpose of a wall is to separate. Mm -hmm. And I understand that the plant is trying to separate itself from the community, but what it did in the past was it had a berm there. There were trees, there was grass, there was an environmental benefit that was taken away and replaced with a wall. The area of the wall, this, the Fiat Chrysler offered this to the community as a community benefit. The community did not ask for this, but they offered to put artwork in a mural behind the school mm -hmm. so that students who came out in the school weren't looking at a gray wall, mm -hmm. which is what exists now, mm -hmm. which is pretty stark and it's pretty unattractive. It also, um, keep in mind that there was a time when students who left um, the school could Southeastern. turn up Southeastern High School. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. left Southeastern could turn up the street and turn down St. Jean, which no longer exists as a street. Walk down that Greenway, which is a walk path and a biking path, and get to other places, including our offices on Connor. And now that has been taken away, so it's also taken away a route to or, for walking, a bus a route, safe, invisible a route. safe invisible route. Mm -hmm. There's so many aspects of loss. So. At the same time this is being done, the community has um, demanded that Fiat Chrysler develop a better response to um, their plans to mitigate the pollution, increased pollution. Eagle required that the state Eagle Department, Environmental um, Great Lakes and Energy Department, demanded that they come up with a community benefits for, um, agreement with the neighbors as a condition for getting their permit. And so they submitted a um, plan without getting community engagement, without talking to the neighbors, we tried to talk to them and have some negotiations and ultimately had to uh, mount a petition drive. Um, Eagle has since sent a letter saying, these are all the things that this is missing. We need to know who in the community you're working with. You don't have a real plan for how you're going to do any of these things. We need more details. And also you need to monitor this more accurately. They still have met with the community, but now they want to do a mural. And so Tanya has started a petition online 
asking local artists not to participate in art washing this initiative and says until they are willing to work with the community around the specific community demands, don't paint a pretty picture on a wall because that's not going to fix things. But I'll say, finally, if they're going to paint a pretty picture, they really need to use student artists and pay them and use people in the neighborhood and pay them. The Don't go international. There are local people who are capable of doing great work. And I don't care if this neighborhood's international acclaim. I don't know if anybody wants in that neighborhood wants to attract international attention to show off their wall. It should be something <laughs> that is meaningful to the people there. Uh, one of the things that uh, was jarring to me uh, in the in the piece that uh, Local Ford did is uh, this notion of a blank canvas as if we are sort of starting from scratch with this project. And my friend Cornetta Lane has uh, notably um, documented um, fiercely just against against that term and it was used again uh, by Rochelle O'Reilly. This wall is not um, a blank canvas. There was something there before the wall. Uh, there was something there that the community latched onto and loved on um, that is now completely gone. And to um, invite uh, international artists to apply to uh, paint paint this wall it is it is a slap in the face. It's a slap in the face to our local artists, and it is a slap in the face to the local uh, student artists who are just as talent, just as talented, just as capable to do something like this, and be paid for it. So uh, there's a there's a lot of work that needs to be done. There are so many conversations that need to continue to happen as we work toward achieving equity around uh, this development. We are not mad about these jobs that are coming, right? Well, we I'm not, not mad about the jobs, but I just need to know if Detroiters are going to be hired into those jobs. It's yeah. time for a report to say how many people have been hired. We keep hearing that 5,000 people, Detroiters, are going to get jobs. And um, nobody ever believed it was going to be 5,000 Detroiters, but that's used as justification for so many things. Yeah. So I'm happy that jobs are coming, but I want a real tally of how many jobs because they keep on reopening the job fair and reopening and reopening. And that tells me that they're not able to hit sufficient numbers. And they were able to hoodwink city council into <laughs> passing an agreement without putting any metrics in the agreement. They said, oh, well, of course we want to hire Detroiters. And then they came up with this thing at the last minute. Well, you know, um, you can't smoke marijuana and get hired on the job. And so we already know that's going to knock some of the people out of contention. I'm not saying people should be able to smoke and get, hi get hired, but I'm just saying that when all is said and done, I want to see Detroiters in those jobs is a, as a response to the over $200 million in um, cash that the city invested in this project, not to mention all the tax breaks. I just... It is it is insane, and it we is. lost we lost the beautiful greenery. I was I rode by it uh, just today. I rode by it today, and it is it's a parking lot. Mm -hmm. Like we we More transform concrete. we transformed a greenway and turned it into a parking lot. I don't know why that makes sense to Kevin, so many people. Um, 
Meredith, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on? So what stood out to me is the whole the community. We're going to bring them together to do visioning and planning. And one thing I can say, folks in Detroit have been visioned and planned to death <laughs> like over the last. Seriously, there's so many community visions on a shelf somewhere and plans. And I mean, very seldom do <coughs> does the community actually <coughs> see their vision when whatever the project is actually happens. They don't see their plan. They don't see their input. And I'm just so tired of, you know, that being the step that everybody feels like they have to take in order to justify whatever their next action is. So. We're bringing the community together, Meredith. Yeah, yeah. They're going to vision. They're going to vision. They're gonna, they're and then folks will be like, that's not what I said. What it is. <laughs> it's, 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 it's right behind my house. Yeah, okay. Oh, gosh. Kevin, you have any comment? <laughs> well, I want to go back to what you said, Orlando. You mentioned the word equity, which gets thrown around a lot mm-hmm. in this city quite a bit. And people are defining it in many different ways. And Mm. to me, one of the challenges we have here is, and Donna raised this very well, that there's historical lessons that we should be learning from that we don't learn lessons from. And we just keep repeating the same mistakes around race, around class. And it's very frustrating when this situation that, that we heard about could easily have been resolved in a way that's actually equitable for the community. But there's for whatever reason, there isn't enough will to move forward in a way that's mm-hmm. going to actually bring people to the table in a Absolutely. real, authentic way, Absolutely. authentically Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Way. <laughs> so I go back to Meredith. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that, that I learned about recently, we um, Invest Detroit did a presentation mm-hmm. for our team at Ford about what they've learned about community engagement and how their process has changed over time mm-hmm. and how they they continue to learn and try to change how they engage with residents. And they use the La Jolla Garden development example in Southwest Detroit mm-hmm. of how they went back to the drawing board many times with that process and learned from the community. They, they instituted a, a participatory, participatory budgeting process mm-hmm. And it, with the community yep. so that there was actually some community improvement process yep. projects Shout out to Maureen that Anway. people could actually vote on, engage in, develop. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's a lesson that we should be learned. What they learned through that process should be shared across the CDFI community, mm-hmm. should be shared with the city. Mm-hmm. We should be instituting these kind of processes so that people have a, a either a roadmap or a template to, to draw from. So my, my thing is, when we when these things happen, we need to not only point out some of the challenges with it, but then point out, as, as you, you both have done, mm-hmm. ways that you could fix this situation to engage young people in the community. Yeah. But there also has to be enough, I think, of enough voices, because it's not just happening over here. It happens in neighbors mm-hmm. all across the it's, city. Well, it's, There's got to be enough voices t- speaking together collectively to say, the, this is when we talk about equity, this is what we're talking about, and this right. is what we're trying to do. Right. And if you're not moving that with us, then we, we have to push and put some pressure on you to move with us so that we have this common definition around yeah. And it's yeah. not, you know, just, okay, we had our visioning session, check. Next, check. Yeah. You know, it's not the a next check thing box. on the list. Yeah. One of the things, yeah. one of the ways that I define equity is giving me what's owed to me, right? Giving, giving what's owed. And one of the things that I found out talking to a resident over at, on Beneteau is that um, they found out about this international call when everybody else found out. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody came to them beforehand and said, uh, this, this, is, this is happening. And so uh, the, the intrusiveness, especially if these are uh, people that are going to be coming in their backyards and through their yards to 
uh, paint a mural on the wall, I think uh, we have to do a better job of just honoring humanity well. and, 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 and agency. And I don't know if we're doing that right. Well, it's, it's up to city government, though. Because yeah. it's not just Fiat Chrysler that did that. They do, they're doing that along with the city of Detroit issuing mm-hmm. that call. Yeah. And our government has the ability to say, um, you know, back in the day when people wanted to do things in neighborhoods, I'm talking about when Joanne Watson was council president. Mary, you'll remember this mm, one, I okay? <laughs> when Joanne Watson was council president, when you wanted any to do any project in any neighborhood, she would say, who are you working with in the neighborhood? Mm-hmm. And if you weren't working with anybody in that neighborhood, you weren't getting the land, you weren't getting the subsidy, <laughs> you weren't getting anything. The city government empowered community organizations to have standing in project mm-hmm. development. And um, right now there is this perception, I think, that first of all, city government can replace us with these um, Office of Neighborhoods and the Department of Neighborhoods as if somehow the mayor can appoint people who will be independently accountable to the community. You know, that's not true. And then the second thing is that all we do is get in the way with our unreasonable demands. And so I think that Right now, it's come to the attention of some people in city government that they're not going to be able to continue moving as they have Mm -hmm. and excluding us. And I think there's a growing recognition of certainly people in place that understand they need to include neighborhood organizations. But had they worked with ECN, which we offered to Fiat Chrysler when they first came to the Mm -hmm. table, let us work with you, let us help figure out what the community wants and needs, they would have been better off in trying to bypass us. And then the final thing I'll say is all of this speaks to the impotence of the Neighborhood Advisory Council, the community benefits model that is now in place. Those yeah, people are, they, I, we're, the, the NAC does not have any influence either. And so I think that we have to be really honest about that. Yeah. Well, fresh off the press. <laughs> I hate to complain, but I haven't had water in a year. A Detroit story. First of all, that's just that's just mind blowing to me that uh, a resident by the name of Letha Atkins uh, was being interviewed by Bridge Magazine, just telling her story about uh, you know the compounding issues that led up to her water being shut off, her husband having cancer and dying and losing that that bit of income, and her being left to pay for all of the bills by themselves. And she said something that was just striking to me. She said, I hate to complain, uh, but I just, I, I haven't had water. Um, as if it is bothersome to people in power when uh, residents in this city who need help ask for it. Um, this is a story by Joel Kurth um, in Bridge Magazine, uh, also contributing to this story, is Mike Wilkinson. So the city council is actually preparing to ask Governor Gretchen Whitmer to declare a public health crisis emergency to stop shutoffs. About 10, close to 10,000 people are living in the city 10, of Detroit. 10,000 households. 10,000 households, excuse me, are living within the city of Detroit without running water. And the city council is going to ask Gretchen Whitmer, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, to take action because she can move unilaterally, unilaterally on this. Now, Mayor Duggan controls the water department and contends that the water shutoffs have been effective in getting people uh, to pay their bills. Uh, the mayor's office responded to city council's plan to uh, petition the governor 
through the health department and the city of Detroit's top doctor said there has been no data linking disease with our residents access or non-access to water. And I am paraphrasing. I just have one. What world are we living in? When our city government makes <laughs> makes an excuse to keep cutting off well, people's water, so uh, almost ten thousand uh, living ten thousand households living without water. Uh, Philadelphia has around the same amount of people, if not a little bit more, and Philadelphia has about one million more residents than the city of Detroit. I'm I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around this because why do we need data to show that not having access to running water is a public health hazard? Well, you know, why? the mayor keeps <laughs> making the same argument, and that is helping poor people will increase costs to the middle class. So Gary Brown wrote this article, or he, he came up with something saying what the city is willing to and not willing to do with respect to water. And he had, you know, all of these programs and plans in there. But one of the things he said is that we have to um, cut off people's water because if not, it will increase rates on everybody else. This is the same explanation for the, the city has for not um, just um, eliminating oh, yeah, the, 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 the tax, tax debt because, yeah. hey, wait a minute, it's not fair to the people who pay okay. their taxes. In other words, he's worried about fairness for people who have economic means um, and are being unfairly encumbered by people who are poor. And it's this weird, wacky view of government where he does not believe the role of government is really to help poor people. But you want to know the vibe that I also get? I also get this vibe that uh, these people should have paid their water bills. Yes. Right. These people are choosing not to pay their water bills. And so we're going to go ahead and shut them off. And the the preeminent threat of shut off is what will move people to pay their water bills because they're choosing their people. Poor people are choosing not to pay their water bills. Where's James Baldwin? when He said being poor is expensive. Mm. Poor people are some of the best money managers in the entire world if poor people cannot pay their water bills it's simply because they cannot pay their water bills there's no choice in some of these matters i don't know if we want to give them financial literacy classes so they can figure out how to make a dollar out of 25 (laughs) cents right and it's like how do you stretch that 25 and it's i think you're right i think that that's a really good point i think that the other point is that there are some unjust conditions where people don't have water people might buy a house out of auction mm-hmm. and the house has a water bill and the city refuses to eliminate that water yeah, bill that happened or, to ricky reynolds who's in an article who bought a home for three thousand dollars last year and received a twenty thousand dollar water bill yeah mm. and so you know i mean that's how unreasonable is it and then you also have people who have plumbing that's not working mm-hmm. and when they're you don't have working plumbing you have leaks your water bill may be excessively high rather than working with those people there's this mindset meanwhile there are people all over the city of detroit who complain about blo- broken water mains and water just pouring into mm-hmm. the streets nonstop. Mm-hmm. or the house next to me is now mm-hmm. empty and somebody stole the copper piping and now the water is pouring mm-hmm. into the basement we could save more money figuring out how to fix those water mains and those broken um, and those, you know, making sure that we coordinate the water shutoffs yeah. with 
um, evictions, but we don't do that. And so we place this burden on poor people. And then also, as you all know, there are certain corporations that owe a lot of money in water bills, GM tell, being one of them. The corporations and to, uh, when they and, and nursing homes sometimes owe these water bills. And what the city will say is, well, no, it would be too damaging to cut them off. And so I think that there is a mindset around um, punishing poor people in our economy, in our city, that really needs to be looked at. So Monica Lewis-Patrick from We the People said this, it's not like people are being reckless. They can no longer afford the increase in water. So you pay the water bill and then you pay an additional maybe $30 in drainage fees, which is over 10% of Miss Atkins' income, monthly income. She's on Social Security. She receives about $730 a month. And more than half of that is going toward her back property tax bill. That's number one. Uh, if you are shut off, there is no pathway to restoration. We're talking tens of thousands of people going into the abyss. And so what the article does in Bridge is draw a parallel between there is help for people who are struggling to pay but are paying to help make sure that they don't get cut off. But what happens to the people who actually get cut off? Uh, the article highlights that the turnaround times, let's say if they do make their bill, some the family pitches in and they make their bill, the turnaround time from when they pay the bill until when their water gets cut on is about a month. What is going <laughs> I ask again, what are, what are we doing in this city? And we have to ask and require government for a better answer than what they're giving. I think they give this answer because we we continue to accept it. But just just think about how many layers there are to this issue. I mean, let's start with just the human factor here. Mm -hmm. Human beings have a, have a right to water and quality water. I mean, we that's that's first point. Second point is city infrastructure and all the resources that are, are necessary to try to build better city infrastructure mm -hmm. so that we can address the the water main issues the the houses that are abandoned and where there's flooding but just think about this if you if you if you give people water it stabilizes it helps to stabilize communities and if we're if we're so concerned and that, that same thing goes with the tax foreclosures if you stop tax foreclosures you're stabilizing communities if the the overall we all say this in the city. We want stable, strong, healthy communities. If you want to do that, then you have to take steps. And these are not huge steps either. Again, it goes back to, I'm, I always feel like so much of this goes back to the, these historical factors around race and class. And if we just will address the, 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 the prime issues here and of humanity, yes. then, we want, then here we go. We, we're already there. We're halfway there mm -hmm. if we address that. We can come up with solutions that are outside the box that protect people in their communities. And then we, you won't have people being forced out of their neighborhoods because of poor conditions. Right. I mean, it all adds up when you think about a small fixes can make significant change. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at the census and the city mm -hmm. is really, really serious. Let's count everybody. Let's count mm -hmm. everybody. Well, some people are leaving. And you know why they're leaving? Because you didn't do your job of trying to help them stay. Mm -hmm. You just assume that, that, that your focus should be on people who may or may not want to be counted as a resident in your city because they might get better insurance deals and tax deals if they don't live here, really. So we have a, I, I think you're right. I think that the humanity thing is huge. I think that the idea that it is not the government's job to address humanity is a scary concept. Mm -hmm. But I really do believe that that is the ethic of political leadership in this city.
Yeah. And I, I, I just would encourage our listeners to continue to support um, independent journalism that tells these stories, yeah. that gives us the ammunition and the data to advocate for people uh, like Ms. Akins. Uh, shout out to Joe Curve, who is a friend of ours, mm-hmm. um, is a friend to the show, for telling this story with respect. With respect. Not not pipping Miss Akins, but telling it uh, with with respect and dignity. Yes. So it was uh, it was it was well done. And can I just shout out sure. Monica Lewis Patrick, yes. the advocates, yeah. the people who are out here keeping Reverend these Rise. stories moving yeah, forward. Yeah. There's so many groups and communities, yeah. so many groups doing work on the ground. Yes. That are keeping these stories out there yeah. and actually moving forward. I, I see, I'm, I'm sure you all see this too, yeah. there's a lot more people who are getting active in their communities because of issues like the water shutoffs or yeah. the tax foreclosures. And we just need more people to feel like they can be engaged. She's to delivered. me, another aspect yes. of a healthy city mm-hmm. is you have, a, you have a citizenry that's deeply engaged and deeply involved and feels respected and at the table when decisions are made. I agree with you. I think that we are at a time right now where citizens are demanding respect. Mm -hmm. You saw that with the blight bond. I mean, you saw that when the $600 million in overtaxation was announced and people were having meetings and a couple hundred people were showing up in, you know, five hours notice to really make the demand change. I think it's going to be hard to put this genie back in the bottle. Detroiters um, had political activism depressed for a while because of emergency management and just the bankruptcy and this fear of or feeling of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. But we are about to take our power back. And I think that's important because the government has to work for the people of the city. That's who elects people in our um, government. So I'm excited by all of the change. And I do admire all of the grassroots activists who have been carrying the torch when it wasn't popular. Absolutely. Because you know what happens when you carry that torch and it's not popular. You're hard to work with. You don't get invited into certain spaces because people see you as difficult. Um, but, you know, what is the flip side of difficult? Easy? Mm-hmm. You know, and, right. and at some point, what kind of credibility can you have as a person representing a neighborhood if you aren't willing to have tough conversations and mm-hmm. really make demands on government? I only hope that uh, Governor Whitmer will honor uh, the city council's request to declare um, a public health um, emergency. Uh, wasn't it uh, Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot that put a moratorium yes. on yep. Shadow? Yes. Yep, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, Governor Whitmer has this policy task force that she's put together, and she's saying she's going to focus on poverty, and water is essential. Mm-hmm. I think Kevin has it exactly right that you can't talk about getting out of poverty without water. And then I want to go back to something earlier before we move on. I, I'm really excited about this Blacks and Philanthropy th- piece. But, you know, any student of science, any student of history knows that when nations established indoor plumbing, the disease rate went down yeah. significantly. In nations where there is no indoor plumbing, you have certain types of diseases don't exist in nations with indoor plumbing. So for anybody who has a real public health background to say they don't see a correlation between having water and disease, anytime you're talking about coronavirus, they're talking about washing your hands and telling you how to do it. And if you have bottled water and you're rationing your bottled water, you're only going to use so much if you use any at all for those purposes. So I think that we send mixed messages when we pretend not to know the correlation between cleanliness and hygiene and disease. Yeah. Uh, That wraps up our Fresh Off the Press segment. If you have any stories and news items that you would like us to cover, please hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at AuthenticallyDetroit, or you can send us an email at AuthenticallyDetroit 
gmail.com. Oh, authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. There we go. In our discussion this week, we were talking to Kevin and Meredith about how philanthropy in black cities show up and why is it, why is it important for black people to occupy positions within philanthropic institutions. So I want to ground um, our discussion. First of all, I'm super excited about this discussion. Right. <laughs> uh, but I really want to ground um, our discussion in the goals and mission that the Association of Black Foundation Executives have laid out um, and allow you both to respond to them. So uh, goal, mission, point number one, the philanthropic sector has an increased understanding of the complex issues facing black communities, and they are better armed with the knowledge, leadership skills, and decision-making power to serve as strong advocates for black communities in the philanthropic sector. ABFE and its members are key partners and members of philanthropic efforts that strengthen black communities. The philanthropic sector is better linked to one another to develop joint or coordinated strategies that leverage resources for the greatest social impact in black communities. And lastly, the philanthropic sector invests new and more effective resources targeted to priorities and issues and policies that impact black people and their communities. Any, anybody want to just respond to that? Those are some great goals. Foundation <laughs> executives. Well, can I say, can yeah, first say yeah. just a shout out to Susan Batten. Yeah. Hey, Susan. Association yeah. of Black Foundation Executives. My boy, Tony Simmons. Tony. Tony. Yeah. Yeah. Tony. Tony. Yeah. yeah. And this is, a, this is a real move since Susan has been at the association towards this mission and these goals. And they really have opened up a dialogue about how do you create social change in black communities. And, th and this framing is to me the perfect way to address that. One of the things that at Ford that we've tried to do is figure out, so you know, we have investments in New Orleans and we've had investments in New Orleans mm -hmm. uh, since Katrina. And I've been learning from that process about how to engage black, black communities plus other communities in, in New Orleans, particularly new immigrant communities. Yeah, marginalized and communities. How they can uh, be at the tables and, and build power to make decisions for, for real long-term change in those places. So I think to part of the, the issue is when you look at foundations, you look at institutions, we always have to look at, and you, and you sort of touched on this, Orlando, in, in, in that statement, where are the decisions made within the institutions? And do you have a diverse set of people who are at the table in in institutional philanthropy helping to make those decisions and guide those decisions. So for me, when I got here as, as the only Ford person in Detroit, uh, one of the things I wanted to learn from my colleagues who were already here was to find out what, what, what did they see that was going on in communities? How were they approaching investments? And how were they approaching grant making? And I knew also that uh, the folks at Kresge have been investing in Memphis, New Orleans, and Detroit, three majority black cities and wanted to learn more about well, what are they seeing in those places that maybe I could apply to the work we try to do here. But I think most importantly, I mean, those are, it's all important to talk to your colleagues and understand what they're doing and see how much space they have to move strategies. But the, to me, the number one thing that I had to do when I got here was just to meet with different folks <laughs> in communities. He met with everybody. And everybody. I did. I just, the first year I got here, I just went out to meet with as many people as I, as I could. And while I did meet with different 
black folks in communities. At one point, um, particularly because I noticed in some of the larger organizations and some of the, particularly in the community development sector, mm -hmm. there wasn't as much black leadership in those spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't getting to some of the artists and some of the, the folks in communities who are making change through arts and design and those things. So I, I, I asked um, somebody that I knew for a while, Bryce Detroit, to help me to Shout just to get, sit down with a set of folks. And so I could just get a better sense of what was going on from a broader set of folks. And we sat down and had this meeting, and I met people like Chase Cantrell, Anthony Askew, James Fegan, all these people were there, um, Rebecca Willis. Um, and I learned from all these different people about the work they were doing, which got me out in other communities. And, got, and to me, if you really want to know what's going on, you got to find ways to get out of your office, get in communities, and meet mm. with residents, meet with community leaders, and find out what's happening. And then that can guide your strategy. But then the one other thing I will say about that is, growing up here, I always recognized that we had some very difficult racial dynamics in the region. And that people didn't really want to talk about those dynamics all the time. So if you're not talking about the dynamics and putting them honestly on the table, how can we create investment strategies and grant making strategies that are actually going to address the root causes of these challenges. If we can't even say, well, let's be honest, the city is 80% black. Mm -hmm. How much of the leadership in the community development sector rep is, is representative of that? Mm -hmm. How much leadership in the workforce sector is mm -hmm. representative of that? How much leadership in the corporate sector is representative of that? So we just, if we can't honestly have that dialogue and really talk about the, the, whether we're being representative or not, it's very hard to develop true grant-making strategies that, re that are reflective of the needs of, of communities. Mm -hmm. And I will say, just to sort of say something a little bit about Fisher, um, Doug Stewart at Fisher, to me, is, um, is an important person in this sector, in this community, because Doug raises those issues all the time. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate him for doing that because as a white director, uh, president of a foundation, that's not something he, he has to do. That's not something he has to do, but he believes in it. And he mentions this to me, and he mentions it to Darren Walker, mm -hmm. my president, whenever he gets a chance, because I, I, that's the kind of leadership we need, not only just in black communities, but in amongst white leadership in the community. We need people who are going to push on racial equity and inclusion. So yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't want to steal any of your thunder. No, no, no. I just have yeah, to lift that shout up. Shout out to Doug for sure. Because, I mean, there's work, for, there's work for all of us to do, right? Uh, for, for him to do with his peers and for us to do as well. But I want to go back to one thing that you said about that real long-term change. It's got to be more than the program officer. So most foundations will hire one black program officer, right? <laughs> but who's the CFO? You know, yeah. who's managing the money? Um, who's your general counsel? Who is investing the endowment of the foundation? Mm -hmm. Where is that money going? How are those decisions being made? Who's part of the governing body? Who's on the yep. board of these foundations? And so I think we um, put a lot of focus on that frontline staff, which is important. I'm not, hear me, it is important to have a Kevin, to have a Meredith, someone that you can call, mm -hmm. but we need to look at foundations as an institution as a whole and start pushing again I love it. Where where we are, I mean, just all over the place, really. I mean, that's what I really want people to hear 
is that when you see Kevin, you see Meredith, you see Camila, you see, you know, all these people, Sarita and others. Um, who else is back at the office actually yeah. running things? And making yeah, it's decisions. so funny. Somebody made this parallel as as it relates to um, making movies in Hollywood. And it's always great to have black actors yeah, on absolutely. screen. Right. Yeah. But. Who's shooting this movie and who's the executive producer who's and who's at the studio, <laughs> who's paying for it, right? Yeah. And that that's super important. One Absolutely. of the questions that I have is, is there a mechanism that philanthropic organizations employ that keeps their ear to what's happening on the ground? Because I, my, my assumption is that the people who are at the decision-making table have absolutely no connection to the people, the end user that this money is supposed to affect. That's my assumption. So I would say yes and no. It really yeah. depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that um, it's it's better in some places than in others. Um, I think there are some folks who are in d- the decision-making roles that do listen to the frontline staff that are out there having the conversations. Um, and I think that just like any other institution, there are folks who are totally disconnected and have no idea what's going on. I have a, um, an interest. I, I have a perspective on foundation work, right? Because I think there's so many different types of foundations. Some of them are much more, a lot of the decisions, the visioning, and the planning happens inside the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. And then they bring them out to the community and they try to find allies. Mm -hmm. And then you have other foundation execs who go out in the community and try to figure out what the needs and trends are. And then bring that information back into the boardrooms and decision-making rooms to help shape how are we going to respond. And it seems to me as though what I'm reading from the, um, from the ABFE. ABFE is this suggestion that the latter type of foundation executive is more effective at addressing needs than the former. Is that true or do you see them as just different, equally different? Because I feel so. I wish more foundation officers did what you did when you came to town, Kevin. You just talked to everybody. He People are like, is he ever going to give out any money? Because you talked to everybody <laughs> for a minute. Yeah. And that was a good thing. I yeah. mean, because you made yeah. sure you knew the entire landscape. landscape before you started to make grants. Yeah. And it was a conversation. Let me get to know you. Let me figure out what you're going to do. And by mm-hmm. the time you started giving money, you knew everybody in Detroit. Mm-hmm. It was like, do you know this person? Oh, yeah, I've talked to them. I was like, who haven't you talked to? By the time you and I talked, you had talked to everybody. Mm-hmm. And Meredith, you've been here Meredith. for a minute. <laughs> so yeah. you know yeah. that um, you've been talking and in, in communion with people for a long time. But I mm-hmm. think that it's important to be out there in the community like that. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I will say that the challenge is, and our, our staff of large foundations that have four cities that they have to cover, right? Um, shout out to all our friends at the Kellogg Foundation, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. you know, who have a national portfolio and have to, you know, I mean, it, it's, we all have our limitations, but I think for the most part, the more engaged you are, the more you talk, the more, you know, informed you are, the better you're able to go back and advocate, the better you're able to make recommendations um, and really bring that, you know, back into the institution. Yeah, and I think there's a there's also this, uh, going back again to Orlando brought up this the word equity, which is one of my favorite words and one mm-hmm. word, and the word I hate the most because it's just has a million different definitions. But I think if you're an institution that actually mm-hmm. lives out an equity strategy, 
That should mean, and, and this connects back to what you were saying, Meredith, the equity should be throughout the institution mm -hmm. so that you're, mm -hmm. all the people who are related to the institution should be advocates for you within mm -hmm. your institution. So, for example, at Ford, on our board of directors, and our board of directors is global, yeah. but we have people like Ai Jin Poo on the board who actually is out there and has been out there doing worker rights uh, organizing for many years. We have Brian mm -hmm. Stevenson on the board mm -hmm. who's been doing criminal justice yeah. reform for many, mm -hmm. many years. Just did a movie on they're that. informing our strategy mm -hmm. internally because they are on the ground and they see right. what's happening. We have people from who represent different parts of the world who are on the board mm -hmm. and are in there understanding what's happening on the ground. So th it should be reflected in your board of directors. Mm -hmm. It should also be reflected in the staff to where, for example, for me, I, I have three, three bosses, basically. There's my director, Jerry Maldonado, who I report to the most, and we connect the most. Jerry has experience at Ford as a program officer. He's a director now. He worked mm -hmm. deeply in New Orleans, so he knows the place-based strategy and the on-the-ground strategy. We have, we have a new VP of U.S. programs, uh, Maria <coughs> Torres Springer. She, her experience is in city government mm -hmm. in New York, so she understands the, the place-based strategy from that perspective. And, of course, Darren. Darren worked at Abyssinia Development Corporation. He worked in community development. Darren also will say, mm -hmm. how do, how, you know, I'm going to show up in Detroit. How can I help you? What can mm -hmm. I do to help you? So from three layers within the institution, mm -hmm. I have support from all three layers who want to help me and want to play different roles in helping me. Right. So if you're trying to set, and this is one of the things I don't think we do enough in philanthropy, we don't share enough about mm -hmm. how the, the internal workings yeah. of our institutions. Absolutely. And I think we share that more, particularly if it was shared at the CEO, VP level, and, and people were connecting more, that might actually help to address it. But again, going back to what Meredith said, you got your global foundations, national foundations with mm -hmm. huge footprint. You've got your local private foundations. You got mm -hmm. we've got the community foundation, and we got family foundations mm -hmm. that operate in a totally different totally way. different yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. I mean, you would you really need to have strategies that will help each layer within philanthropy to understand what's happening on the ground mm -hmm. from their perspective. Because the family foundation is family members who are going to be running that. And they're going to be the And that's what Fisher decisions. is. Fisher well, is a family foundation. Where's the foundation. space for them, like, mm -hmm. like the Association of Black Foundation executives? We, got, we need to say so you need to get there so you can actually understand mm -hmm. and develop your family's strategy for grant making. Right. That's why we, I mean, we have like 52 affinity groups for philanthropy, which is probably too many, but, mm -hmm. but it's good because no matter who you are, you can go out there and get support to develop that strategy. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, how, what is the difference working with a family foundation, Meredith? So, um, well, there's different types of family foundations, too. So there's some that are very engaged, like the Fishers, um, all of the governing body. I mean, they're Fisher family members. And so they, they're the part of they are the board. Mm -hmm. They are the grant committee. You know, they make the final decisions. Um, and then there's um, family foundations where there aren't any family members involved anymore, very few. Um, and they have added independent committee members and independent board members like the Cerdner Foundation and, and others around the country, big and small. Then they're really like your checkbook foundations. It's just, you know, Don and I are sisters. Our family left us some money. We write checks from, you know, an account every year and, and give to our favorite stuff. So, I mean, there's just such a, a range of what a family foundation can be and how they can operate that it's hard to say what a family foundation really mm -hmm. is. And most of them are the latter. Right, exactly. There's the only checkbook. something like 35, 3,600 yeah. people who work in institutional philanthropy all with 70-something, mm -hmm. 75,000 foundations. Most of them are just yep. check writing 
yep. um, organization. Yeah, wow. we we yeah. we are we're fund we are being funded by a family foundation, the Cedar Tree Foundation, mm-hmm. and that was sisters, right? Oh, okay. Yep. And yep. then one sister. <laughs> Broke off and formed her own foundation, mm-hmm. the Alternative Foundation. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of, you know, so I think part of our grant this year is coming from Cedar Tree and part of our grant this year is coming from Alternative. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of, I think in this instance, it's a lot more hands on mm-hmm. than your typical foundation. So mm-hmm. I agree that there are different types. But what is And a it? lot more learning. We, we had to do a lot of teaching. Um, in the in the implementation of those grants, especially because uh, this family wanted to be, you know, very hands-on, but mm-hmm. wasn't native to the city, and you know, right. some of the work that we, right. you know. a lot of connecting for sure. Yeah, a lot of connecting mm-hmm. to systems. A lot of I need to know who this person is, and now they have kind of I think cemented their how they're going to do work in the city, mm-hmm. and so it's become more clear. But it it was definitely different than, say, um, a Fort Foundation. Now, I think the Herb Foundation is also a family foundation. Mm -hmm. And that's a different type of family foundation. What's Mm -hmm. it like at Fisher? What is the dynamics? What are the dynamics like? I mean... Well, I mean, they have professional staff, and and they Mm -hmm. do have staff that they listen to. I mean, we make recommendations. We don't make the, you know, final decisions. Mm -hmm. But I think they they respect the recommendations that we bring to the table. Um, But like any other institution you would go to, I mean, think about if you had to sit around the table with your cousin, your grandma, your aunt, your uncles, your sisters, your brothers, Mm -hmm. your mom, and your dad. Can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and make decisions, you know, about about something. (laughs) Right. And so it's not, it's never, those dynamics aren't easy. I mean, there aren't easy on regular boards, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it, ha- mm-hmm. it, it has another dynamic um, just from the family relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also love there, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's just it's just it's different. It's different. Can you yeah. all talk about uh, the perceived um, whimsicality mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, strategic prioritization and directions on part of foundations one year it seems you know for a couple years oh we're investing in this and this is our strategic strategic investment and then all of a sudden it changes like who's informing uh like flavor of the month (laughs) yeah yeah. right anybody want to take that on well i think it, it it all depends on where the foundation is going, what the assets look like. Mm-hmm. At, at our foundation, we will mm-hmm. will operate in these sort of four or five year cycles mm-hmm. where we, because part, part of the challenge, let me just go back for a second. Part of the challenge is you're relying on your investments to bring a certain return mm-hmm. so that you can have a fixed budget for a period of time. Right. So I know what the Detroit budget is for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. It might not be that in a couple of years and then we might have to make decisions about what the strategy looks like. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the challenge for many foundations is because you are in many ways, the, the return on investment will dictate how much you can spend in any given year, which means you may have to cut back on something or you may have more resources mm-hmm. to move forward on something. Mm-hmm. So we do have strategies like for, for us in Detroit, we sort of have three pillars of our strategy here that we're working on. One is around equitable development and land use. One is around the building, the mm-hmm. organizing and advocacy infrastructure mm-hmm. in the city and at the state level mm-hmm. and to, to 
create policy change, progressive policy change. And then the third piece is really around strategic collaborations with other funders or corporate sector of the city to really move forward on an equity and inclusion agenda. So that is pretty broad. So you could fit a number of different program strategies in that. And so I could, I could fund a lot of different program areas. But if we're not being very specific about how do we address the root causes yeah. of these challenges, and then we could just spread the strategy anywhere and it could go anywhere. And when you think about it, even though we have a, a certain budget here that's you know, pretty significant, there's no way I can cover all the things right, that, of course. I, that I think should be funded. So having that strategy um, that comes from, you know, it's par partially my writing and what I'm doing, my director. We have a Detroit working group team back in New York mm -hmm. that's made up of 12, 14 different people from different thematic areas. We all contribute to shaping what that strategy looks like. Mm -hmm. But that's, again, one institution and how we approach it. Mm -hmm. And that's a very practical answer. Yeah. The very shallow answer is that, you know, once something gets hot, no one wants to be left behind, right? <laughs> so they all jump on the equity bandwagon because equity became, you know, the, the buzzword, the term. Um, mm. Ford started yeah. the whole capacity building and investing in, mm. and everybody said, capacity building, that's it, you know. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of that too. I mean, I'm just, I mean, for real, yeah. there's, there's a lot of that. No one the wants to be left behind field. with the, yeah. you know, the hot new speak, thing. I think is what speak. you coined, yeah. right, Meredith? <laughs> I didn't coin it. I just put it out there, yeah. you know, that, the urban um, council. <laughs> that, that we see that showing up in a lot of places, yeah. even in community development, right? Mm -hmm. Or in the nonprofit sector, something becomes hot. We come up with the silver bullet solution. Mm -hmm. And it may just be reframing something we've always done before. Yeah with a new nuance, um, but mm -hmm. I think that as grantees, a lot of times we find ourselves having to figure out how to reframe our work mm -hmm. from time to time in order to stay with the yeah. foundation trends and also how to anticipate where foundations are going mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that we can be there in time. So right now, sustainability is the thing. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that we're working in the sustainability area, so that been. works for us. Um, but, you know, um, and, and, you know, hats off to Maggie DeSantis and Jody Raines for putting us on that path where we're now able to sort of, you know, be in this pathway where we see a lot of growth coming. Um, but it would be really, really great to have a source of funds that didn't change from time to time, but mm -hmm. kind of expanded its, its field. And I'm wondering whether that's possible or whether that's just a dream of nonprofit organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I feel like we do do at Fisher is that we'll we'll stick with something. If it's working oh, yeah. and if it's great, the partners are great, yeah. community's happy, community wants it to continue. You know, we'll we'll stick with it. If there's no reason to to not. Um, mm -hmm. And I do think that sometimes um, folks are just looking for the next thing. Sometimes, I mean, honestly, it can be as shallow as I'm kind of bored with this right now, and so some <laughs> folks will you know just turn. So, yeah, it's just... Uh, but that, that, it is that an advantage of being a place-based foundation as well? I think it's an advantage of being a smaller foundation that's more flexible. So I, mm. I, I, I can't speak for the Ford, Kellogg's, and Kresge's and the large ones of the world. They, it doesn't seem like you're as flexible and can, you know, can turn on a dime and make decisions like in an instant, whereas you know, the benefit of a family foundation is that you can call everybody up on a conference call and say, hey, this needs to be done. Are you okay with doing it? And they can take a vote and it's done. Um, so mm. I think that that's one of the benefits of being smaller, of being um, even maybe being a family foundation is that you have that flexibility. 
Yeah, I would agree. I, I, the foundation I worked at before this, the New York Foundation, was smaller, mm -hmm. and we could make adjustments in yeah. very quickly. I mean, literally, I remember one time going into my my director's office, Maria Matola, hey Maria, <laughs> um, going into her office and saying, you know, uh, we're not funding enough groups in the Bronx. We need to fund more mm -hmm. organizations. Because we, we had this strategy that we weren't going to fund more groups in Manhattan anymore. We we're going to only fund groups in the outer boroughs. Mm -hmm. And so we just, I went into our office. I said, we're not funding enough groups. All right, let's go out. Let's go out and see who's doing what up there. Let's find <laughs> yeah. you know, Or one point, you know, we were trying to build black organizing capacity That's in the city. And we just, you know, I tried a couple different things. It didn't work. And I, mm -hmm. I went into our office and I said, look, we, I, I got to try something different. I got to go to some community organizations and try mm -hmm. something different. And we just, we, we were able to do that. So you, you do, it's smaller, mm -hmm. you have more flexibility. Mm. On the other hand, I would say that working at a larger institution mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily do place-based strategy, I mean, this is a unique strategy for Ford in Detroit. We don't yeah. do this anywhere else in the U.S. I mean, we do have place-based strategy in New Orleans mm -hmm. and other places, but I'm the only one who's not in the New York office. And I said I was mm. in the New York office. So there is having more resources to, mm -hmm. to make flexible grants to groups and to pilot some things and look at projects like some of the stuff Bryce has been doing, you know, yeah. I've been looking at some of that mm -hmm. or supernatural, you know, the, the project that Lauren hood is, has been working on to be able to, to be able to fund things like that. And is something that I could not have done at New York foundation. Cause I just didn't have the bandwidth to, to be able to do those kind of things. So what are you most proud of um, in your years of philanthropy? What have you done that brings you the most pride so I would definitely say it's making the connections with folks who had never had access to philanthropic resources before, and then also introducing some community partners to the foundation that they just didn't know one another. Um, I just think that it, we can't state enough how important making those those connections are in that network is because you'd be surprised how, how many folks just don't know what's out there, what's available, and how to access it. I think for me, and I'm... I'm you know, I'm happy, you know, I'm loving being back. But one of the things I have to say about New York is having worked in a nonprofit sector for mm -hmm. 20 plus years in New York and having worked as a tenant organizer and trying to build a, the tenant movement there mm -hmm. and then funding it in New York and now seeing what's happened, a 25 year can't, process really, mm -hmm. which has now created all of these progressive changes around tenants' rights mm -hmm. and affordability in New York City. I feel like my whole career that I was a part of making that happen. And I'm, it's encouraging to me because I feel like here we could do the same thing. Yeah. It's going to take time. Yeah. It's going to take effort. I think Hopefully one not 25 that, years. Well, but I think one of the things that philanthropy we need to think about is that if we're trying to build ecosystems yeah. and trying to, to so that we have ecosystems that can create that change, that takes long-term investment. Absolutely. And yeah. it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to measure mm -hmm. the effects the of strong policy work and community mm -hmm. organizing work and all that in a year or two. We have to be patient. Our money, we should think of our money as patient capital that goes to supporting community-based work over time. Get that bill. Get that bill. 
Because that's, <laughs> going for America, America. that's what leads to the kind of changes that happened in New York. That that was yeah. long-term patient money. Yeah. To help yeah, build absolutely. that movement. Yeah. Absolutely. And movements do take a long time yeah, to um, cohere. And exactly. so I'm really excited to hear you say that mm-hmm. and um, say that because I think, you know, it's interesting that, that your greatest pride is when you were actually doing the work mm-hmm. and you saw you made things happen. Yeah. And then you move away from <laughs> actually doing the work to helping other people do it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's. Not as much fun when you're in this administrative <laughs> capacity as when you are on the ground <laughs> doing the work, yeah. is it? Because I even find that true to, for no. myself. Sometimes it's like, I want to be the one in these meetings mm-hmm. doing this thing. You know what I mean? And oh, it's like you, you feel oh, yeah. disconnected in some ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But, but, but can I say, Donna, though, I, I, one of the things that was the biggest, the thing that made me the most happy when I got back here was seeing how many people were doing that kind of work in Detroit. Yeah. And yeah. particularly what made me happy was Mm -hmm. seeing so many young people engaged and involved and wanting to see different outcomes in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And to, and that I honestly, I I see more energy here around in that than I saw in New York. Wow. Mm -hmm. One of the things that fascinates me that I often think about that I want to ask you guys about is program officer relationship with grantees. Um, and uh, accountability, transparency, um, and communication. I know that people sometimes are probably overly nice to y'all and are always happy to see y'all. How do you how do you how do you approach that? I would say, uh, working at ECN, we're we're sort of a privileged organization that has had the benefit of having a thirty five year history. So I can be a little bit more honest with where we are if we ain't done yet or we need some time but i know a lot of people feel you know so much pressure to perform and to make sure that the impact report is on par how do you how do you alleviate that how do you you know work with that i think it's really about seeing seeing the relationship as a partnership and so we don't talk about grantees we talk about grant partners in our grant partnerships Um, and acting as a partner, right, which means that I have work that I have to do, you have work that you have to do if it's a true partnership, and being transparent and being honest and um, holding one another accountable. I think um, in philanthropy, I'm more than more than happy to have you call me up and be like, yo, you know, I haven't heard from you. How come you haven't returned my email or my call? But at the same time, you have to be open to me calling you and say, wait, that report, I really need it. <laughs> you know, it's late. So, you know, it's a give and take, and it really is about working together and um, being honest and, and seeing it as a true partnership. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people who here who are very honest with me yeah. all the time. <laughs> very honest with yeah. me. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I actually appreciate yeah. that. But I agree with Meredith. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who I. Know. Who are you talking about, Willie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you know what. I mean. uh, there's a lot of people who, you know, they they might not have had good relations with foundations. Yeah. They might not feel comfortable. They get people get worried that if they they share too much, you might not continue to fund them. Yeah. I mean, I understand. I mean, I like to try to show up. As Kevin Ryan, but I know that when Ford Foundation has always attached my name, right, and I can't escape that. So when I go into spaces, mm-hmm. I mean, you can. I mean, I'm doing this for a while. You can tell when people are just, you know, they're being nice. They want the yeah. money, and then you might not hear from them for a while. Mm-hmm. Other people are looking to build a relationship and are looking to, you know, whether it's to get support, help you, for you to help them get support from other places. Or to, you know, in some cases, like I said, people would just will be brutally honest with me about what mm-hmm. we're trying to do, how we're trying to do it, how we should do it. And I appreciate that those comments from people. And, and 
the best meetings are when I get to go to a community meeting mm -hmm. and hear from people who are not grantees, who are not running nonprofits who are just in the community and hearing from them directly, mm -hmm. that also helps me stay grounded yeah. and understand what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you have any advice that you would give um, a person who is a prospective grantee who is not yet funded by your organization about how to, what you're looking for and how to get um, engaged? I say start by talking. You have to have the conversation um, do some research first, you know, um, so know what that foundation, you know, what they'll do and what they won't do and where and all that kind of stuff. But do your research and just have some conversation and be open to um, the same transparency and respect that you want from the foundation. Because, mm. you know, a lot of times. OK, we just I'm just going to yeah. say it because a lot of times the foundation frontline, the program officers, whoever, um, we will get beat up about why, why you didn't, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And I put in a proposal this many times and all that. Um, and I'm not saying that some of those aren't without merit. Um, but a lot of times if you dig peel back the layers a little bit, there's a, there's some good reasons why. Um, and it's sometimes it's not the program officer. That's the reason mm -hmm. why those things had not been funded. So I think that, um, people need to be real about how they're showing up as well as, um, and hold themselves mm -hmm. accountable to showing up well, as well as holding philanthropy accountable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I would say I will try to stretch cause I, I want to hear people's stories mm -hmm. and I will try to stretch as far as I can to see if we can fit mm -hmm. this yeah. in what the work you're doing. Cause most people who I meet are doing great work. It's just we don't have enough resources mm -hmm. or it doesn't fit squarely into the strategy. But I will sit with you and we can talk it through. We can mm -hmm. talk it through multiple times yeah. if you can be patient with me <laughs> and see if we can make it work. Because yeah. sometimes there's space and things happen yeah. and you just never know what's going to happen. We might be able to pull it off. But I like to just sit and listen mm -hmm. and hear what you got to say. It might even take a couple meetings to just hear yeah. what you have to say and what you're trying mm -hmm. to do. While my mind is trying to is is spinning, trying to figure out can we fit this? Because mm -hmm. I meet so many people who do great work, particularly a lot of small scale developers who are just doing yep. great work across the city, and I'm always trying to okay, how can I get this in? And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But I want to always stay in touch too. If I feel like right. it's even close to a fit, let's mm -hmm. stay in touch over time. Because maybe in like you said, Donna, that first year I didn't really. Make, I mean, they didn't give me any money to make any grants for <laughs> either, so it was good because I didn't have the pressure to have right. to make grants. But mm -hmm. it gave, having time to just talk with people over mm -hmm. time, you never know. A couple years from now, mm -hmm. it might we might figure right. out what that looks like and get it in. So, and that right. inside work, it takes time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it it's not like you just, you know, well, I sent you a proposal. It's Why a isn't it funded? It's like, institution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us time right. and an opportunity to be your advocate. Yeah, right? we, and just, just yeah. that's a that's what I love that. Be your advocate. Mm -hmm. That's a good yeah. point, too, because some foundations have grant deadlines. Yeah. The one I worked at in New York, we had three times a year you, saw, you sent proposals in. So we would get the proposal, we review all the proposals, mm -hmm. we do site visits for the set of groups that fit. So everybody who fit would get a site visit, mm -hmm. and that would take a month, a month and a half. We then get together, make the decisions mm -hmm. together. Then we still had, I mean, we made decisions as the program staff, then we'd have to go to the board, and the board would have to sign off on this it. So, so that whole process mm -hmm. took three months. Damn. At Ford, we don't have, we don't have grant deadlines. I, I work with people throughout the year just to try to figure out if we can fit this in. Like we, we try to get all the grants done before October because that's when, when we have to close the year out. Mm -hmm. But 
I might talk to somebody throughout the year, and then that last couple months, we finally figure out how it works. Yeah. But every foundation has a different, mm -hmm. and that's why the research is so important, yeah. understanding how the foundation does its work, how they make the grants, the mm -hmm. timelines, and all those things can actually help you to prepare and, and maybe set your goals for how mm -hmm. much you're trying to raise in a year and when you, that money might come in. Right. So the research is important. So what I'm hearing is two R's, research and relationships Absolutely. are the way to um, really cultivate grant makers. And I'm also hearing that um, there is value in working with African-American, with black grant makers, with program officers and people representing the organizations in that they may not, they may understand your organizations better or your community needs better because there is that, you know, affinity. There is that shared um, experience. However, I think sometimes people think that because you are black, mm -hmm. that means that they are entitled to something. Do you run up against that as well? Which is part of the getting beat up. Already. <laughs> Sometimes it, how come it hasn't been done already? Yeah. And so, yeah, that, but, you know, honestly, I think we, we're talking about philanthropy tonight, but this happens in every institution, yes. everywhere. Show sure so. happens to us. Yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah now, you know, but I, I think, though, for us, it is a little different because I, I think people don't fully understand how philanthropy works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the, the IRS created these these tax exempt policies to create mm -hmm. organizations like this where the wealth comes from a lot of different places, yeah. some very historical places. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a very strange structure mm -hmm. that we exist in. And again, there's not many of these mm -hmm. these jobs either. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people don't fully understand how that that works and the mm -hmm. layers. I mean, we mm -hmm. talked about this earlier yeah. of. I'm at this program officer level. I got a director, VP, and you know, there's yeah. there's there's so many layers to it. Mm -hmm. But just understand, like when I, I remember talking to one of my cousins about it, and they were just like, "Oh, I can put in a proposal, you know, that I want to start this gas station and open this." Thing right, <laughs> right, exactly. No, we don't fund that. We don't, we don't fund that kind of stuff. You ain't gonna put a gas station. No, <laughs> but no, it, it, it's so it's so cool to hear you all just take the mysteries. Yeah. out of it because so many times we wonder and we commiserate within ourselves and within our own communities about what may or may not take place and so it was it was really affirming when you guys both immediately said yes to come on and let's like you know demystify some of this and have some honest conversations about how philanthropy shows up in the black city and how it doesn't mm -hmm. um it is it is useful i think this deserves a part too yeah I, I, <laughs> yeah but because. you're also making me think, you know, in New York, mm -hmm. one, there was a church in Queens that would have these community dialogues with philanthropy. And they would do it every year, and they would bring community residents together to learn about, you could learn about mm -hmm. how you can start your own community organization, how to yeah. you get your 5-1-C-3. And I'm as a part about. of this full day of activities, they would have a set of, of foundation staff come in and talk to them exactly about their processes and how they did things. And that really helped to demystify a lot of this was because mm -hmm. you knew every year they were going to have it. It was deep in the neighborhood. In fact, one of the, one of one of the sessions I did at one of those, Michael from Good Times came to the session. He was <laughs> going to start his own he was organization. The it was great. It was great. Yeah. Um, but but it was great because you did. You were sitting in front of community members, and they could ask anything they wanted to ask about what you were, you know, how you did it, what you what you funded, all that kind of stuff, and it really helped. I think you know, the community that, that, do, that's um, do that something that my old organization, Youth Development Commission, mm. formerly Youth 
um, the um, Youth Force and Recreation Commission used to have a Show Me the Money Day, and mm. they brought all kinds of funders mm. into a single place and had some workshops and things like that. You think there's still a need for something like that? I, I think there is a need to kind of demystify. I think that there's a there's a pretty large separation between philanthropy and because philanthropy you know we do have boards who we're responsive to but we're not like elected officials but we also have a lot of assets that are that we're um, putting out you know supporting a lot of different work in the city but it's not the same level of understanding or accountability Mm -hmm. as i mean even if you we even talk about government i mean it's very hard to understand all the agencies and who works for what and who leads what and all that Demystifying philanthropy, I think, is that would be an important thing. That would be a wonderful project for CDAD to do something like that. Madhavi, we're assigning assigning work to you, (laughs) Madhavi. Or for building the engine. I mean, I'd be happy to. Oh, I would love to give Maggie work. But I mean, yes, right? (laughs) Let's give Maggie some work. Let's give Maggie the work because I think that when you start talking about capitalizing community development, it's not just going to be through the government coming in, but I think that really exposing everybody equitably to all of the information. And also something I appreciate about Kevin is Kevin has blurred the lines between community development and social action groups and said, wait a minute, this is all part of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so um, broadening our net and inviting people to a same table, I think that would be an important role for us to um, take to Maggie's doorstep. I actually, I was more I'm co-act. That's what I was. Co-act. Or Elandra. We can oh, give Elandra this oh, one. Yeah, maybe it. Yeah, maybe it's co-act. I don't, yeah. I'm not as familiar with co-act, yeah. but I. I think that's a good idea. I think somebody Ooh, needs to do that in yeah. Detroit. We yeah. have to do that. And I, you know, I'm not putting you on the spot either, Orlando. But Urban Consulate could have, you know, an event where. You bring philanthropy yeah. out to talk, you know. Oh, of course. I think yeah. that's a, that'd be a great conversation. We, we've us. done that once, and it was it was very successful. We had Meredith out on the panel, and it was oh, it was great. Go. So great. we would we would love to do that again. But Listen, our I, thing. I, I'm really thinking oh, though, sorry. a fair. I'm thinking something a cobalt size thing, because if oh. you say we're going to line up all these foundations and community organizations and come demystify. out and demystify, <laughs> huh? everybody's going to show Everybody up. Everybody coming, and yeah. I I think it could be really really big. I like so that. think big about it. Okay. Think big, Orlando. Oh, oh that's easy. <laughs> But, but for real, I, I think what we need to do with black folks is just remind that black philanthropy is real and is, is very yeah. much in our history. Yeah. Um, Go to church. It's not You'll a white it structure. Um, it's, yeah, absolutely. The the black church was one of the, the very first, yep. um, you know, philanthropic institutions mm-hmm. in this country. We and and black philanthropy goes way mm-hmm. back before we even hit these shores. And That's so right. let's remind one another about our own <laughs> philanthropic power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And economic power and, um, you know, just work on building that as well. And there is an affinity group for that, too. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Our, <laughs> our thanks to Meredith Freeman and Kevin Wyan for mm-hmm. joining us today. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. What an amazing discussion. Okay, time for shout-outs. Donna, I'm putting you on the spot. You got shout-outs? You got them ready? (laughs) Yes, I want to shout-out Monica Lewis-Patrick for her advocacy work. Yes. Um, I want to shout-out... Taking people water with her car, dropping off water in her truck. I mean, just... I want to shout-out Bernadette Atuene for um, the lawsuit that she helped file demonstrating that um, Detroiters did not receive notice in 2017, proper notice 
to appeal their taxes. The notice process is ridiculous anyway, but they did not get it, and I expect that to be a real serious move in our city. Um, and let me see. I want to shout out our staff who were um, in Atlanta, Ricky Ackerman, Savannah Brewer, and uh, Michelle Jackson in Atlanta really sharing um, our vision for sustainability and community development with other people across the nation, and especially in African-American and Latino communities across the nation. Nice. And shout uh, out to the Kresge Foundation for oh yeah, um, was, funding yeah. this process. Oh, nice. um, and, um, yeah, Shamar, and I'm so bit bad with names, Jalan, but I can't oh, yeah. think of... I apologize. Yeah, that's Jalan Newsom and Shamar Bibbins. Bibbins, thank yeah. you. Um, are really yeah, awesome everybody. in terms yes. of black philanthropists. Yes, they, are they are just up there at the top of everybody. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, I I want to shout out uh, Kevin and Meredith for joining us today. Uh, um, <laughs> it, it is a pleasure and it is an honor to have you with us, uh, Meredith. I thank so you. enjoy our time together every time we're together. Every time. Uh, and then you know Kevin. Kevin just is one, as he's he's just one of the homies. He knows, he knows everybody will come and talk and you know vision with you and it's it's amazing. So thank you, thank you both for being here and thank you to Kevin for your investment in um, authentically Detroit. We we really appreciate it. We say it every week. We are sponsored by the Board Foundation. So uh, I want to also shout out, I have to just once again, shout out to the brilliance that is Kalisha Davis at the Detroit Historical Society. I can't speak enough about how monumental that event was. Uh, the Aussie and Sweet story is hidden from so many people. It's not in books. It's something that most of us have had to seek out or heard about. She's doing a magnificent job in making sure that even more people um, hear about it. Um, and I want to shout out, we have a new staff person at Eastside Community Network uh, by the name of Ian McCain. He is our new business development manager, and he has hit the ground running, up, running up and down Mac Avenue, canvassing and meeting folks. He's doing a fantastic job. He's a huge fan of the show, and I wanted to uh, thank him for hitting the ground running. So shout out to Ian. All right. Meredith and Kevin, you guys have shout out? I do, I do. And not because he's my honey, but Aranje Miller you from better. the Kellogg Foundation. <laughs> you I better. have to shout out Aranje. Um, huh? Detroit King High School grad, alum, HU alum, really running um, the racial equity work at Kellogg and doing an awesome job nationally. Um, and we need to get him in Detroit more often. So um, Make it happen. Yeah, we're going to have to. love to have him. On, Kevin, uh, you know him. You know everybody. Come on, bring him on in. <laughs> I do. Maybe so, he'll stop by the Kellogg office. Someone so who's, yeah. He can work out of the Kellogg office in Detroit. I know. So tell him. Tell oh, yeah, because you guys are neighbors, right? Him, yeah. Well, I sit right across from yeah. Serena. <laughs> yeah. And I sit, I mean, we yeah. So, okay, I got, so, I got three quick yeah. ones, and this is keeping with the theme of black philanthropy. So, Juwan Harris. I just saw Juwan. Joy Jones. And Michael Williams, all at Kresge Foundation, yeah. all young philanthropic yeah. leaders who I hope will be the future senior leadership in philanthropy in this city. Nice. So shout out to Absolutely. all three. I just ran into him Friday at the DIA, Juwan. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to see him in Oakland. We're going to be in Oakland next week. Too. Nice, nice. Mm -hmm. All right, Demystifying Philanthropy. Part two is coming up soon, y'all. We don't know <laughs> when it is, but it's coming. Uh, thank you for listening. Catch the wave. We'll see you next time.